We're going to do something special first. Pastor Michael is going to bring the word today, but I just wanted to share a passage that was on my heart this morning, and we're going to hear an update uh, from a family in our church that the Lord is calling into the mission field. But let me go ahead and read this. This is in Matthew 6, a well-known passage. It says, Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love that passage where Jesus gives us this great reminder that uh, the things here on this earth are all in some way or another passing away. They're not worth in a sense, looking at as treasure, putting our hope in, like basing our lives around because they're not going to last forever. Only the things of God, the things of his kingdom that you've been brought into through the faith you have in Jesus Christ, those are the things that are worth investing in. And when we do invest in those things, what inevitably, whatever we invest in, that's what our heart is going to be following after. It's going to love. It's going to care about. Have you guys experienced that in your lives? I remember early on, like I'm not somebody that really dabbles in the stock market. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I just don't have the time for it. But I remember early on in high school, we had this economics class where we were encouraged to kind of pick some stocks to invest in and, um, you know, watch how they do, like see how successful you could be. And even though I cared nothing about stocks, for the couple of weeks that I did that, I was always checking the stock market page because I wanted to know how my stocks were doing that I had invested in. And, and it's like that in life. Anything you invest in, your family, your friends, your job, whatever it is, you tend to care about it. But the moment we become believers, we're, we're given like a greater purpose because everything we invest in, if we're doing it with that right intent of for the glory of God – it becomes significant because the return we get lasts forever. And so we start to look at things differently. And, and, and the Lord has a way of leading us to like, like what he wants us to invest our time in, how he wants us to do things for him and his glory um, so that we get to the end of our lives, which we're all going to, right? 100% out of 100% of us, unless the Lord comes back early, are going to die. That's where all our lives are heading. And death is either either going to take you to your treasure or it's going to take you from your treasure and i don't know about you but i don't want to get to the end of my life and and realize that i wasted a whole bunch of my time and things that were just going to pass away they were going to burn right i want to get to the end of my life and see that like oh look at look at all the all the the things i'm going to reap the rewards for for all eternity because jesus gave these things to me and he trusted me with them and i used them for his glory I would say that 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 is the heart of everyone here that is wants that is a follower of Jesus. You want to be in that place, and that's something God's constantly teaching us, right? And so, there's so many different ways we invest in the kingdom of God. We invest with our time, you know, in in in, in the different things we do for the Lord in our lives. You know, whether that's in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in specific ministries He's called us to. Um, you know, with our finances, that's a way we invest in God and in the things of his kingdom. You know, our lives just in general, we give them as an act of of being a servant of God. Like it, um, Paul says in Romans 12, like that's our, 
we've been set apart for God as a living sacrifice. So the only rational thing is to give every single bit of your life to God, like look to him and, and submit to him. And then he'll be able to show you his will and, and it'll always be good, pleasing and perfect. And so sometimes for some of us, that means kind of life altering decisions. I would say that many of us in our lives at different points have what we would consider life altering decisions where God is asking us to do something for him that's going to involve in a sense, putting aside the things of this world, the things that the world would say you should treasure for the things of his kingdom. And for this specific family, he's asking them to do that in going to Israel. And so you've heard an update from the Rashans before about what the Lord's calling them to do. And so today they're going to give us an update on where they're at in that call that God has given them. So I'm going to have the Rashans come up and give us an update. You guys can applause the Lord and applause them in the process. You know, that verse um, was has, was instrumental in leading us to um, just step out in faith and to see what the Lord would do. Um, this is my wife, Krista. I'm Josh. We have five kids, and we are headed to the Middle East. Um, we're leaving in June, or no, August, August, but we need to be fully funded by June. And uh, some exciting things, uh, Krista's starting language lessons hopefully this week. And uh, which which is exciting because now we get to work together on language and teach our kids. Um, we're doing um, this next week. We're doing a garage sale at the annex uh, to prepare and to unload a lot of our worldly treasures <laughs> and you know send them ahead for us. Um, the uh, all the proceeds that go uh, that that come in from the uh, garage sale are going towards our startup startup costs uh, for Israel. You have anything to share or anything um, more? For those of you who aren't familiar with where the annex building is, it's the um, the youth group junior high senior high building that we use in Warrington. It's at 711 East Harbor Drive. We're going to be starting at 9 a.m. on Saturday and going until probably about three o'clock or so. Um, we are just trying to do this will probably be the first of a few different garage sales because obviously we kind of need to keep the bunk beds around until we're gone, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so this will be like the first sweep, but we've got, we're trying to go through and do as much purging and getting rid of stuff that we know we're not going to need between now and then. Um, so everybody is welcome to come and peruse. Um, where as far as like support, I know you mentioned that in, we need to be fully funded by June. What that means is we have a certain amount that we have to raise in monthly commitments for while we're on the field. But then we also have what Josh was saying, startup costs, which will go towards things like we have to furnish an apartment when we get over there. We have to be able to, um, pay for visas, which are one-time things, our airline tickets to get over there, um, transporting homeschool materials because we homeschool our five kids, those sorts of things, they cost money. So those are just our one-time startup costs. Any proceeds from the garage sale will go towards that. Um, but we need to, to be considered fully funded. We have to have all of our monthly support commitments into our OM account by the middle of June. And then we also have to be able to have those startup costs covered as well. Um, and then that would allow us to then buy the plane tickets for August, et cetera. Um, we'd love to talk with you guys about any of it. Anyone who's not familiar with our story, we, we would totally chat with you about anything that you'd like to know. Yeah, we're currently at almost 40% on our startup costs, and we're right around, what, 15% on our, our monthly support. So um, we're going we're gonna to put a sign-up sheet in the back for our uh, newsletter, 
um, and we'll be out there after after service to talk and uh, talk to anybody in, that has any questions about what we're doing. Before you guys go, I want to pray for you, but just to encourage you guys as a church family, like the privilege we get for supporting these guys is that you actually know them. Like, you know, we use that term like we're a family. We are. There's no such thing as friends with uh, a Christian. We're all family. We're the family of God. But I always like to say, like, you know, other churches, other people, they're part of our family, but that's kind of like extended family. Like, this is immediate family. We know them. And if you know the Rashanes, like, they're not going to hesitate to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, no matter what the environment is that they're in. And, and where they're going is kind of a hostile environment. You know, we, we, like, you know, we, we know the Jews as being God's chosen people or whatnot, but we also know that the majority of them aren't going to really become saved until the tribulation period, if you know your Bible prophecy, and that they've rejected Jesus as the true Messiah. They need to still receive that truth. And so these guys are going here to give them that good news of Jesus Christ being the one that came to save them, God's chosen Savior. Amen? And so we get to come behind them, you know? And if you want to love the work of God, like that that passage I read you invest in the work of God. And some practical ways we can do that with missionaries is we pray for them. We offer our time in any way they need our help. You know, maybe that's at the garage sale this week. We financially support them. We're going to be supporting them as a church when they go off. But I encourage you guys too. You want to care about the things of God. You want to be a part. What I've experienced in my life is when I support missionaries, I am like right there at the front lines with them in that I care about what's going on. So when they rejoice when people are getting saved and hearing the gospel, I'm rejoicing with them. And when they're hurting, I'm hurting with them and I'm praying. And that that we, we want to be joined with our brothers and sisters as they go out from us and they're used by God in this calling. And you can be a part of what God's doing. And I would encourage you as their church family to be a part of that. Amen. Amen. So if you guys got questions, we've got their handouts and stuff back at the missions table right outside the door, and then they'll be around to answer any questions you might have. So let's go ahead and pray for these guys. Dear Heavenly Father, I just lift up the whole Rashane family as it's getting nearer to this uh, time, Lord, to, to go, to, to leave everything they've kind of known here in this this place you've had them for this season and go into this next season of their life. We know, Lord, that you go before them. You're the one that opens and closes doors that no man can shut or open. And so we we continue to pray for that. Your timing is always perfect. It's never late, never early. It's, It's right on time. And so we want you to open that door clearly for them, Lord. We know that all the logistical stuff, and there's lots of it that needs to happen to go into another country and live there. We know that small things for you. And so we just ask that you would continue to take care of that stuff. You would open those opportunities to go into that country to, you know, whether with visas and, and all the things that are needed. You would make it clear the communities that you want them to go into to be a witness for you. Um, we pray for uh, the finances, Lord, those things that are needed to kind of practically get there. Um, you know, as far as the garage sale and, and getting all their affairs tidied up here, we pray for all that. We pray for the adjustment, the huge adjustment for them and their kids of going to a whole new culture, learning a whole new language. All these things, Lord, we ask that you would supernaturally intervene and prepare them for this work that you have so that there can be much fruit as they go there and they, in the power of your Holy Spirit, are your witnesses and are able to glorify you 
and you use that to draw all people to yourself, Lord, and to save the people over there that don't know Jesus Christ. We pray for that. And we pray that as a church family, you would specifically lead us, even now, tell us how you want us to come alongside them to support them and be a part of this great work you're doing over there uh, in Israel, Lord. So lead us in that. May we be obedient to your voice as you tell us what to do in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, Pastor Michael, you're up. I'm just here to supervise, so (laughs) never know. It's not intimidating preaching in front of your boss at all. It's totally fine. It's all good. Hey, we'll be in the book of Genesis today, chapter 12. So you want to turn over there? So Genesis chapter 12 starts the, the story of Abraham. Such a great character in the Bible. He's referenced in the Old Testament, New Testament. He's the father of the, the Jewish nation. And uh, we're going to jump right into the earliest part of his life and kind of work through the chapter. And we'll end in chapter 13, verse 4 today. So I'm going to pray again very quickly and we'll, we'll dive in. Here we go. Lord, thank you so much for your word. You promise that it will not return void without accomplishing what you send it forth for. We bank hard on that. We, we want so much to know you, and we believe that you speak to us through your word. This is what it claims to be. God breathed. And you know the needs of each of us today. You know the challenges in our, in our life that are coming up, where we need your guidance, where your word can be that lamp to our feet. Uh, you know the places where I need correcting and conviction, each of us. We pray for that, Lord, that you're word would be that sharp two-edged sword that gets to the thoughts and intentions of our own heart. I love that. And the comfort that it brings so many times when we've just been wrecked and you'll give us some solid ground to stand on from your word. So today, Lord, as we look, may your spirit speak to each of us that we might glorify and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so chapter 12, verse 1, I'm reading from the uh, NLT, but I'll probably ask you for some help because there's some parts in the translation here I don't like. That sounds really arrogant. But let's just see how it goes. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those that, that treat you with contempt or curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, some backstory for this. When we dive in, we're like, oh, it's Abraham, the father of faith. What a great guy. Well, at this point in the story, uh, Abraham is probably a very successful pagan. Uh, We know from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, that his dad, Terah, who's in the genealogy just before this, if you want to go back and read it, uh, was an idol worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldeans, a long, long way from the promised land. And Abraham was his son and probably doing what his family was doing. And so he's probably just worshiping idols like everybody else. And Ur was a, a, a center of ancient civilization. So we're talking like 2100, 2200 BC, somewhere in that range, right? And it's, it's that fertile crescent that you've seen and kind of, they sometimes call that the cradle of civilization. So Ur was a great place. So picture Abraham as like kind of a middle-aged guy. You know, he's probably like 50-ish, you know, and his business is successful. He's got the Lexus and the big house and the hot tub and the hot wife. We're going to find out Sarah's really beautiful as we go through this story. And he's just kind of doing his thing. And all of a sudden, God interrupts his life because it doesn't say anything about Abraham seeking God. He had probably no way of knowing God at that point. So the Bible doesn't tell us how God spoke to him, but God very much interrupts Abraham's story. And I, I love reading the Bible with a little bit of imagination because God gives this call to Abraham. And verse four says, so Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed. Now, 
you know, th- that sounds easy, but he had to leave everything behind and convince his wife. <laughs> Honey, I just heard from God. You heard from who? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, this, I, you know, I don't know. God told me we need to leave everything and go. And so somehow he convinced it. But before we move on from there, I just want to point out these things. One, Abraham was not a guy who sought God and found him, but a guy who was sought by God. God wanted Abraham. And that's our story too. God loves you and me right where we're at in the middle of our mess. And he wants you to come and follow him. I think this is encouraging because sometimes in your life, you may, it's our tendency is often to compare. And I don't know where you've been, but you may look around and you go, oh man, you know, I don't have my life together the way that Stephen Smiley does. Or I don't, you know, I didn't grow up in the, with the godly family that so-and-so had. And you look at Abraham, like he had none of those advantages. He was just a guy doing his thing and God found him. And Abraham goes on to be called the father of faith. All of us trace our our life back to a relationship that God started with Abraham and ultimately brought Christ into the world through his family. So be encouraged. If you feel like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to amount to anything because of my background or where I've come from or my pagan past or any of those kinds of things, heaven's sakes, Abraham's probably got you beat. God can use Abraham. He can use you and me. Now, before I move on from the, this, this section of verses, we no, need to note some very important things. This is such a critical section of scripture. Note what God asks Abraham to do. He's supposed to leave behind three things. Number one, he's got to leave his native country. He's got to be willing to leave the place that he's known for probably most of his life. He's got to leave his family, might say relatives in your Bible or family. And then this may sound like a redundant phrase. It says your father's family or your father's house. Does anybody have father's house in there? Yeah. So this, though, you got to know that for um, Near Eastern um, culture, your, the family was absolutely central. You did everything for the family, for the reputation of the family. That's how marriages worked, all that kind of thing. And the, 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 the patriarchy was strong. So when it says leave your father's house, what he's saying is, I want you to leave where you live and your relatives, and I want you to leave the whole system of authority that comes from your dad. Like you're stepping out and doing something different. Um, in some ways, you know, you could compare it maybe to the, a thing like the Roshanes and what they're doing. They're, they're planning to leave the people that they know and their family here and the land that they've known and all of the structures and stuff that have been in place. They're going to something completely different. It's always sad to me, by the way, sometimes when folks are ready to go on the mission field. I remember when I was working at Ecola and you'd see students who were excited, felt like God had called them. And it would sometimes be the family that would hold them back, even a Christian family. Why? Well, People want to see their grandkids, you know, or they're worried about the dangerous place that their, their kid wants to go. And so there comes a time sometimes where God calls us to say, I, I need you to, fu- to fulfill the plan that after your life, you're going to need to leave these comfortable things that are familiar to you. Even making decisions that your family may not like to follow me. And so that's, that was a call that Abraham had to, had to, to uh, deal with there. And then God gives him some promises. Uh, what, sorry, one more thing. And he says this. And go to the land that I will show you. So God had a very specific spot for Abraham, but he doesn't tell him where it is. (laughs) Hey, it's a surprise. (laughs) Leave. Where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. But it's very important to notice that this, there's a land that God is calling Abraham to. When you go through the the Old Testament in particular, and rolling over into the new, when you think about the uh, millennial kingdom that's coming, the blessings of God for his people in the Old Testament were very much connected with a place, very much connected with the land itself, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. 
that Abraham would occupy. And it was uh, a way of almost determining whether they were uh, operating under the blessing of God or not, whether or not they were in the land. The land was always theirs. It's given to them right here by God through Abraham. But their enjoyment of the land was contingent upon their faithfulness in their relationship with him. So when they fall into idolatry, there's a long string of discipline that God brings into their life, ultimately com- uh, culminating in deportation. They were removed from the land. So the land, this is what I want you to get. The land is the place of God's blessing for his people. It's where he wants to have that relationship with them. It's where his very best for them will be found. It's where he'll take care of them. It's that place. It's that place that God is calling Abraham to. And there'll be places in your life that God has called you to that may be uncomfortable, that involve you leaving things behind that you love. But listen, he's calling you to a place where he wants to take care of you. Grab that idea and hang on to it because we'll need it for the rest of the deal. Okay, so then he uh, makes some promises about the ways that he's going to bless him that include descendants. Oh, um, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you famous. He's going to have a great reputation and he's going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Obviously, that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Verse four, so Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed. And when you read that, you're like, man, what an awesome guy Abraham was. I mean, here he is, this pagan. God calls him and he's willing to leave all that behind and just go to the land of Israel. That's why he's the father of faith. But the narrative here is truncated. If you listen to Stephen's sermon, not our wonderful Stephen, but Stephen, um, the one of the first deacons in Acts chapter seven, we learn something, that God's call to Abraham Because if you read verse 4, it says that Abraham leaves Haran. God's call to Abraham took place in Ur, where he was originally living. And what happens is, although God tells him, leave your family, leave your father's house, and the land that that you're in right now, he goes as far as Haran, and he takes his dad with him. So it's like, has anybody ever partially obeyed God before? Like, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. That seems really hard. So how about this much? Can we go this far? So the truth is, Abraham wastes a number of years. We don't know exactly how many. It could be around 20, 25 years um, after he's heard the call of God and willing to step out, but takes a lot of stuff along with him. And he really doesn't leave Haran until his dad dies. It takes that removal of this person from his life for him finally to step out in what God had uh, asked of him to do. So just know this about Abraham, and this is important. Although he is called the father of faith, and he is, don't um, lionize this guy into some sort of like superhero. You know, he was a man like you and I who definitely screwed up, definitely was partial in his obedience, definitely delayed, sometimes really trusted God and sometimes didn't. And this story has a little bit more of the latter than the former. So when you, if you've had a time where you're like, man, I heard from the Lord and I stepped out on obedience, but I've just wasted like the last 20 years. Don't despair. Don't think I'm done. That's it. God hasn't spoken to you anymore. It's over. Nope. Just go back to the last thing he told you to do and start obeying him. Abraham does and watch what happens. So Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed him and Lot went with him. Now, what were the three things he was supposed to leave behind? Family, country, and his father's house, exactly. Well, he's still taking some family with him. And this would have been tough. Lot, uh, his dad had died, so there's that whole responsibility thing. But God had told him very specifically to leave him behind. And Lot really is a tragic story. It's, this is speculation on my part. You can throw it away. The Bible does not explicitly say this. But 
Lot's story really ends in, in a deep tragedy, moral compromise, um, incest. It's just not happy. And I wonder if Lot would have been better off if Abraham hadn't tried to help him. I don't know. Lot's responsible for his own choices, but I sometimes have wondered that. Anyway, Lot goes with him. And Abraham was 75 when he left Haran. Maybe you think, you know, my best years of serving the Lord are behind me. I'm 74 years old. He's teasing Paul. And Abraham starts really in this, this further obedience in the Lord when he's 75. Granted, he lives to 175, but still. And he took his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth and his livestock and all the people that he had taken into his household at Haran and headed for the land of Canaan. This is a really long journey. And if we had a map, you'd see that there's this thing, the Fertile Crescent, where he's starting in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's moving up here to Haran, and they're following the Euphrates River all along the top until they come to uh, Canaan, the land of Israel, as we know it, over here on the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a really long journey. And by the way, people sometimes question the historicity of these um, these texts, but there's such good evidence for um for what the Bible claims as history. If you get to go to Israel, there's a, um, a mud brick gate that they've uncovered that dates back to the time of Abraham that he probably went by. You can go by this thing. They call it the Abrahamic gate. It's amazing how they've preserved it. It's just so fun to walk in the land and see like, oh yeah, real people. So anyway, he leaves here and he goes to Canaan with his family. Abraham traveled through the land, verse six, as far as Shechem. And there he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. And now, after all this time has passed from the time God had spoken him, spoken to him, and after Abraham's delayed obedience and partial obedience, now having stepped back into the will of God and stepped out in faith and done the things he was asked to do, God gives him the next step. I think this is useful. Sometimes we uh, wind up at places where you think God has been leading you, and then it's sort of like everything just stops. There's a number of reasons that that can happen. But sometimes it's because God isn't giving us any further revelation or leading until we do the last thing he asked us to do. Has anybody had this experience with kids before? You have children. Hey, you need to do this chore before this. Okay, all right, well, I want to do all these other things. I have questions about who I can have over today or what we're doing tomorrow. Listen, listen, I gave you one job. You need to do your one job before I will give you the next job. And that's how God often works with his kids like us. And so there it is now, Abraham, in the land that the Lord appears to him and adds to what he's revealed before. And he said, I will give this land to your... Now, my Bible has descendants. What do you have there? Can you loud enough for me to hear? Offspring. Yep. What else? Seed. You've got the KJV probably, yeah? Is that what you're reading? Okay. Yeah, this is important actually because... Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, grabs this idea in Galatians chapter 3 and makes a big deal out of the fact that the word used here is a singular for descendants. It is true, God had promised in chapter 12, uh, verse 2, that he's going to make a great nation. That obviously involves more than one. But what the Lord says to Abraham here is that this land is being given to his seed, a single descendant he has in mind, which is Christ. So just a noteworthy thing. I don't like the translations when they mess with that. Anyway, and Abraham built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to them to him. This is such a cool uh, spot for me too when I, when I think about Abraham coming into the land, not knowing what he's doing or why he's there, and God meeting him and reassuring you're in the right spot. And what is Abraham's response to this promise? The promise is, I'm going to give this land to your specific descendant, Jesus, but ultimately you're going to have this whole family. 
did Abraham have any children at this time? No, zero kids. And he's 75. So do the math on how many kids you could anticipate at 75. And God promises that he's going to give this land to those kids that don't exist. And he's going to give them a land that's currently, we just read it, occupied by other people. So for Abraham to find any value in this promise is going to require him to operate by faith. He's got to trust that what God said is true in spite of what he can see. And that is the people of God's story from time immemorial, that we are those that walk by faith and not by sight. And it's telling to me Abraham's faith is shown in his response to what God says to him. What does Abraham do after God speaks? He builds an altar. The response of faith is expressed in worship. Oh, man, God, that's awesome. Praise you, Lord. That's, that's fantastic that that's true. Like, well, we'll see. I don't know. It could happen. Oh, thank you, Lord. That's true. So uh, one of the, the tells of faith in my life and yours is when we respond to something that God has said, maybe in his word, that you can't see, and it changes your response. You say, oh, that's awesome. Let's say, um, here's a one that I love, Philippians 1.6. And I, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it to completion in the day of Christ. Now, there are times when I'm looking at the track record of my behavior and my relationship with the Lord, and I'm like, I am a train wreck, and I'm never going to make any progress, and it's all over, right? Does anybody have these days? Okay. And I think about a verse like that, and when I choose to believe it, it's so much comfort. Oh, Lord, you've promised that you won't leave me this way. You'll finish what you started, and it's re- it changes my, my perspective. Oh, Lord, praise you. Worship is the immediate response of faith. So in your life, when God has given you a promise, when you find something in the word of God, let me encourage you, worship him for it. And you can see this with David. Same thing when the Lord says to David, hey, you wanted to build a house for me? Nah, it's not your job. Your son's gonna do it, but I'm gonna build a house for you. I'm gonna build a whole you know, dynasty that comes from you. And David goes in and sits before the Lord like, who am I in my house that you brought me this far? Just this whole thing of praise comes from David for something he can't see. It really was even a no. He really wanted to build the temple and God told him no and he's still worshiping him because of what God is saying in his life. And respond to what God says in worship. So there's Abraham, he's in the land. He's really close to obeying and God has appeared to him and spoken to him. And so he's traveling south now. And it says in verse, uh, the middle of verse 8, that he builds another altar and dedicated it to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord. And then Abraham continued traveling south by stages toward the Negev. This is the southern part of Israel. It's a desert area. Verse 10. Here we go. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan. So Canaan, Israel, is a very interesting place geographically. Um, You've got, if you were looking at it, if you could take the land of Israel, you know, we're usually looking at a map that's flat and you were to turn it sideways. Does this make sense so you can see the topography? Picking up what I'm putting down with my weird motions. So you could see like here's the Mediterranean Sea coming in from the west coast. And then you hit what's called the Shvela, like this plain, this kind of flat area. And then you go up into the hills and then up into the mountains, and that's where the like Jerusalem and stuff would be, right? So it kind of has this whole sloping situation. And there's not a lot of natural water in Israel. You have the Jordan, famous Jordan River, of course, but they're still fighting over right, uh, water rights in the Middle East today. I'm sure Josh has some solid stories from people he's talked to back there, and there's this, the headwaters of the Jordan are under dispute and all those kinds of things. And so they were very dependent, very dependent on rainfall. 
This land that God wanted to bless his people in and take care of his people in was a land where they would be depending on God to provide what they needed to live. It wasn't something they could gin up or work up on their own. They would have to depend on God to give them rain at the right time. And so when there wasn't rain, it got dicey in, um, in the land. So we get, there's a whole sermon on what God says about how the rain's going to work there. But I would like you to note this. This is an important point. When you are walking by faith and you are in the will of God, it is possible for you and I to experience times of famine. As Abraham walking in the will of God at this point, I mean, apart from Lot, we still got that little, he's still got that lot he should have sold, but I'm sorry. No. He needed a lot line adjustment. No? I got one? Okay. All right, I was just trying to survey that section. But anyways, uh, you guys need to know this. One of the things I think I run into and and I find is that there's this implicit idea, like if I just follow God and I live according to the rules, then my life will go really smoothly. All of my children will walk with Jesus. I'll always be able to pay my bills. My marriage will be super smooth. That's And that's just a lie. It's not found in the Bible. There are people that preach that, I think, maybe with good intentions. This is not to say that there aren't blessings for following him or walking in obedience. Absolutely. And there's a catalog of verses that say so. God gave some to Abraham right here. But it's really important to remember that people who are loving God and walking in faith go through times of famine. It doesn't mean, it could mean, sometimes it's discipline, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. It's a great time to check in. Lord, is there something that I'm missing here? Have I, am I dragging a lot along with me? Is there some issue? But not necessarily. Think about this. Did Jesus ever go through a time where he was hungry? Yeah, you know, 40 days, no big deal. He's in the, he's in the wilderness without food to seek the Father. And it's not because of sin. There's nothing wrong with our Savior. We will, you will go through times that are lean. And this is why this text has been meaningful to me in the last several weeks, because I've been thinking about my own life and some places of leanness and how I respond to famine as a follower of God. Because I think in those times that where you're under pressure, when things are lean, when there's famine, when there's lack, that really reveals a lot about what I'm actually have my faith in at that time. That's that pressure that really shows what's going on. It can be a real time of growth or it can be a really, oh man, there's some stuff, you know. You heard the, uh, the old analogy about the sponge by the sink? You guys heard this one? Pastor Jason used to use it all the time. So if you have a sponge by your sink and it's been there for too long, like you know you need to replace it, if you grab that sponge and you squeeze that sponge, what comes out of that old sponge? Oh, no one wants to talk about it. Like dinner from four weeks ago, something, you know, just it's just all this foul stuff. And it's not, if you were to look at that and go, the person that squeezed it, what are you doing putting all that stuff in my sponge? You grabbed it, you squeezed it, and all that stuff came out of it. It's your fault. No, those things were in the sponge. It was the pressure from your hand that revealed the disgusting things that were in the sponge. And sometimes times of famine and leanness and pressure will reveal things in my heart that I'm sorry are still there. What do you do when you're under the gun, when you're, when you're feeling famine? Where do you go? How do you try to deal with that? I think that's a question that I would, if I were you, I would write down that I've been contemplating for myself. Where do I go and what do I do to satisfy and to quench those legitimate needs, those legitimate places? How do I respond? Well, let's watch how Abraham responds. Not the best example, but that's why we're here. 
At that time, a severe famine came on the land of, of Canaan. And again, I don't like my NLT translation. It says, forcing Abraham to go down to Egypt where he lived as a forder. Who's got a different translation? What's it say? So he went. So he went, right. Now you can see that, I feel like it's, a, it's, it's definitely more accurate textually anyway, but forcing makes it sound like Abraham was like, oh, I don't want to go, but I guess I have to. And that's not it at all. The idea is Abraham is experiencing famine. He's the leader of his family and he's trying to figure out what to do. Have you ever been in that spot where it's not just you, there's other people depending on your decision-making and that makes it worse. It's like, man, there's people who got to eat. What am I going to do? Well, Egypt is different than the land of Israel. We talked about the geography and how the land of Israel, Canaan, was super dependent on rainfall. So when there's no rain, you had like a famine, dry season, all that. (sighs) Egypt has the Nile River. In fact, when God describes the promised land later, he talks about how the, in Egypt you would you could uh, use your foot to do basically irrigation. And so Egypt, in some ways, had a more regularized um, breadbasket situation than Israel. If you were there, you could pretty much expect that the Nile was going to run, and most of the time you'd be able to pull stuff out of it. And, and so Egypt was a prosperous place. For the people that were in Canaan, it offered a way of providing for your needs— the only thing you would have to do is to leave the land of Canaan to go and enjoy those things that Egypt could provide for you. And so he does the math and he's like, man, my family's got to eat. I'm hungry. And I think I should probably just go down to Egypt. It's probably the best move. Where had God promised to bless Abraham in the land? He says, man, this is the place that I'm going to bless you. This is where this, all these things that I promised for you are going to come to pass this is the place where I want to take care of you. Now, I know those are my words, but that's what God is. I think that's a, a fair summation. And Abraham decides that the place where God promised to take care of him and bless him wasn't the best place for him. He needed to go somewhere else. Guys, that is the danger with famine and dryness and all kinds of things that happen is that at that moment, you will be trying to figure out what to do. And it's very often that your own flesh or the world or the enemy will present to you an option that involves not seeking the Lord first and letting him take care of you. It's dangerous. There's a uh, wonderful verse that I've been ruminating on for several weeks now from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the Lord says, brokenhearted over his people who are deep into idolatry at this point, he says, my people have committed two evils They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the the imagery he's drawing on there was very familiar to his listeners. If you go to the Middle East today, one of my favorite things is to see the water systems that they built. It's so cool because, again, having this issue with water, they would build these cisterns to catch rainfall and store it. One of the coolest ones at Masada, but that's the same way. If there's an Israel tour and you can go on it, you really should. It's so much fun. Anyways, catching water, and they put these in these cisterns. But these cisterns were like dark caverns or pits that you would catch water in. Now, if you are out and you have an option to drink from a nice, fresh, bubbling spring in the woods or water from a stagnant pond in a cave, which one would you choose? Yeah, exactly. And that's the imagery he's drawing on. He's saying, I am the fountain of living waters. I give life. What I have is alive and pure. Jesus draws on this imagery in in John chapter 7 and when he meets the woman at the well. And instead, cisterns that can hold, they're actually leaky. They're not as good to begin with and they're leaky. But what's the appeal of a cistern over the living water? Control. Control. 
Absolutely. Dude, the really wealthy people had little cisterns in their own house. That's how you knew you're the man. You'd hire your plumber. You'd get Terry's plumbing to come in. You're like, I'd like to dig a nice cistern right in here. And like a catchment system so when the rain hits my roof, I can put it all in this little deal. And then state of Oregon would be illegal because you don't own the... I'm sorry. Anyway... <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. I don't really care that much about that. But you'd, but you'd have these uh, cisterns that could catch water. That'd be your thing. Instead of counting on the living water, which was better, but not something you could control. Ah, you'd have to count. You'd have to trust. You'd have to wait. You'd have to go to the water on its terms and drink it when it was available to you. And it was better. And boy, it could be really tempting to think like, ah, I need a cistern. Where can I find a cistern? Something I can control that's always going to be there for me that I can kind of keep tucked away in the dark. I don't kind of work. Yeah, I mean, if you drink muddy water, I suppose it kind of quenches your thirst. But it might also kill you. So there's that downside. So here's Abraham in the middle of famine, and he decides he's going to go down to Egypt. Now, I want to just be really careful. Sometimes I think teachers like me or anyone else can overplay our hand and say, going down to Egypt is definitely a sin. And I would say that's that's... I think it's a bad decision. I don't know that I can call it sin, and here's why. Number one, at this point, no text has been given, no revelation has been given to Abram that we know of that says, don't go to Egypt. There was no verse that he's violating. Later on, that's true, but not yet. And number two, there's at least two profound examples in the Bible where God specifically has some people go to Egypt. Can you think of one? Yeah, Jesus, it's kind of, (laughs) Jesus went to Egypt, clearly can't be sin. In fact, an angel told him to go to Egypt. There's a time. And what's the other one? Jacob, yeah, exactly. Jacob, and Jacob is anxious about it. Maybe knowing the backstory of how this is going to turn out for Abraham. He's going down to Egypt, Joseph's there, and he's like, before he leaves the land of Canaan, God actually comes to him in a dream and says, it's okay, go. I'm going to take care of you guys there. It's going to be fine. But I'm sure Jacob was like, are you sure you want me to leave Israel? Because I know what Genesis chapter 12 says. So let's go on and see what happens to Abraham. So I think Abraham is scrambling. I think we can definitely make that case, but I don't want to say that he's in sin. He's definitely not right what we i conspicuous by its absence we don't see abraham pray here's this guy who's worshiping god building altars but in the middle of famine he's like oh i gotta do something even if it's wrong i love this quote from a commentator i like he says abram like most of us found it easier to trust god in the far-off promises than in the right now needs that hits for me if you, if I'm in my worst, like I was pretty depressed, uh, probably like a week ago, let's just say. Yeah, it was. And if you ask me like, man, is Jesus coming back? You'd be like, absolutely. Is he going to give you a brand new body? Yeah. Are, is, are all the desires of your heart going to be fulfilled? Absolutely. But how, what about this thing right now? I don't know about that. I'm trying to figure that one out. But do you, do you, do you feel me on this? I mean, is this how, but how am I going to pay my bills? I don't know. You know? So I think this is such a good, a good point. Man, I can really identify with Abraham. Absolutely, Lord, you'll make a great nation and you're giving me the land, but I've got to eat today. What am I going to do? So down to Egypt he goes, where do you go when there's a famine in your life? Are you looking for people to meet that need? Are you chasing money? Are you chasing relationships? Are you thinking you need to change jobs or make massive adjustments in your life just because you've got to scratch this itch? Man, be careful. I really think that's a dangerous time. Really think it's a dangerous time. I love Jesus' example here. When he's tempted, talked about him in the wilderness, right? And here he is, very hungry, with all the power to fix his situation on his own. And what does the devil say? Why don't you take a shot at it? He goes, hey, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Implicit in that for Jesus is, 
God is the one who takes care of me. I'm not going to short circuit that. If this is where he has me, I'm going to wait for him. That's right. Our savior shows us the way. So down goes Abraham. Here he is. And as he's approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham says to his wife, look, you're a very beautiful woman. What a great Valentine's Day message. Abraham shows us the way, honey, I've got this trip planned for us. We're going to go down to Egypt, take a Nile cruise. You're so beautiful. If it only ended here, but it does not. Abraham continues talking, which is where most of us get into trouble. Now, oh, oh, I wanted to tell you this. This is so interesting to me. In studying for this, I found out in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a document that's like an apocryphal uh, kind of commentary on Genesis. So it's, it's not inspired scripture. It's just text that would go alongside that. That spends a whole chunk of time talking about how beautiful Sarah was. She's, she's not a young woman at this time. I think she's like 65. And they're like, this woman, and they go through this whole description of her. Whoa. I mean, when they're taking time to preserve documents about your beauty over hundreds of years, that's saying something. Sarah was a gorgeous woman, evidently. Um, and so Abraham says, you're so beautiful. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Let's kill him that we can have her. Now, that sounds kind of bizarre. But the uh, rules of the, the culture at that time were you couldn't take someone else's wife But if you killed the guy, then you could have his wife, which makes total sense, right? (laughs) Anyway, that was the rule. So Abraham probably has a valid fear, Um, but his plan here is stupid. (laughs) This is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So verse 13. So Abraham has been thinking about this, but don't worry, honey, I've got a plan. So please tell them that you are my sister and then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Okay, so we find out from chapter 20 that this was their kind of normal game plan, and it's, it's a half-truth. Uh, they both had the same dad, but different moms, so that he, she is his half-sister, so it's half-true. But, but just whether you want to debate, you know, this is just, I don't know what Sarah must have thought. I'd love to know. Don't you wish you could watch? Like, you're so beautiful. Oh, honey, thanks so much. No, no, I've got more. Um, how about this? I'm really worried about myself and my skin and what might happen to me. So could we just pretend like this whole marriage thing isn't actually real? That's cool, right? Yeah. Ugh, bizarre. And why would they maybe not kill him to get her? Well, um, and he says, treat me well. So if you did want to marry someone, the way that you had to do that was there's this whole negotiation for the bride price and dowry. And so Abraham is probably thinking, this is speculation, but likely thinking, if I'm the brother, I'm the uh, the male in the system, and so they'd have to negotiate with me. And so if some dude was interested in you, he'd probably come to us and be like, hey, your sister's so pretty, you know, I really want to marry her. And I could just kind of stall him and we'd go through that negotiation and we'd probably benefit from it in the deal. And then, you know, we're only here for a short time anyway, and then we'll just leave and it's cool, right? Oh. Look at this guy. Listen, watch how Abraham goes from worshiping God, responding to his promises to he's in a pressure situation. He's trying to figure it out on his own. And now he's really, really scrambling and making some really ludicrous decisions about how to treat his own family. Have you ever done this? Have you ever compromised things that you know probably weren't best out of expedience? Oh, it's so dangerous, so dangerous. I think of King Saul. Uh, Brent was telling me about the men's Bible study the other day and they were talking about Saul. You know, Saul is waiting. He needs to wait for Samuel, a priest, to come and offer the sacrifices, but that the army's starting to scatter. So what does he say? I forced myself. Everybody was scattering. I was under all this pressure. I had to do something. Even if it was wrong, I have to do something. 
Now, when you're in the spot where you feel like you have to do something, it's a great time to pray. It's a great time to slow down, follow the Lord's lead and say, God, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. What has my master to say to his servant like Joshua? I love that pivot. When Abraham should have taken a knee, he chose to run, thinking that a short touchdown in Egypt was what he needed. No, I thought that was a good football analogy for Super Bowl. Okay. He should have taken a knee, but he ran because he... Okay. So he says, please tell me your sister and they'll spare my life and treat me well because of her interest in use. So Sarah evidently goes along with the plan. Verse 14, and sure enough, when Abraham arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarah's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarah was taken into the palace. So what Abraham and his plan didn't reckon on was maybe the most powerful man in the kingdom will actually want her. At which point, you don't negotiate anymore. He may give you a bride price, but he's going to set that bride price, and you're not going to say no. So I do wonder, and this, I've always thought this when somebody pointed out, like, what does this scene look like? Abraham's plan, like, we'll negotiate, you know, I'm your brother. And now Pharaoh calls his bluffs, like, I'm marrying that girl. I'm going to bless you. And so the guys come from the palace to take his wife from his tent to the palace. And what's Abraham doing? Just like, bye, honey. Oh, my goodness. And what look has Sarah have on her face? Like, hmm. <laughs> if they don't kill you, I will. So <laughs> anyway, Pharaoh. So then Pharaoh gave Abraham many gifts because of her. Now, note the gift list. It's important. Sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. It's a haul. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. And Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them and sent Abraham out of the country along with his wife and his possessions. Tell you what, the second, my favorite things about this story, number one, we're going to finish in 13 really quickly, but number one is, where do I go when there's a famine? Man, Abraham almost loses his wife because of his choices of expedience. That is a story that you and I, if you've been around long enough and watch marriages, has seen unfold and not end this way, where they walk out together. Because of expedience, because of something I have to do, that I need to do, and you almost lose your family over it, bad bye. What I love, the second thing I love in the story, though, is this. Who steps in? God steps in. Guys, it gives me chills. When I am an idiot, when I am unfaithful, when I am making bad choices for myself, when I'm not seeking him, God is gracious and kind because he loves me, and he's invested the blood of his son in me and you. God steps in. The Bible says, and write this reference down. This is a great one. When you really feel like you're screwing things up. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 13 says that when we are faithless, which I think you can make a good argument that Abraham is faithless at this point, the father of faith acting faithlessly, God is faithful. When we are faithless, he is faithful. And he steps in and stands up for Sarah. He intervenes for her and protects her. He intervenes for Abraham and keeps the promise that God had made that I'm gonna give you descendants. That was in jeopardy. The one with whom he was to have these descendants, he almost loses her over this decision. And when God brings him out, you look at it and you go, Abraham leaves richer 
than when he went down to Egypt. There's, in a sense, there's some blessing that comes out of it. That is our God. He's kind to us when we don't deserve it. I hope if you make a terrible decision, well, you already have, you're a human, that you'll remember this. Ah, oh, when you've screwed up, because the enemy will come and be like, that's it, you're done. He's going to find someone else. Just phone in the rest of your life. No, no, just go back to obeying him. Walk with him. He will take care of you. By the way, one other note, and we won't unpack it today, but when, when the Bible wants to call out uh, an exemplar of a, of a wife, a godly wife, the only Old Testament wife that's used is Sarah. Not to say there weren't other godly women in the Bible, absolutely. But it's interesting that Sarah, in the middle of this, is called out for her trust in God. You can read about her in First Peter chapter 3. Uh, Brie, actually, in the marriage retreat, did a good job with that passage. I really appreciated what she had to say. Sarah was a woman of faith. In fact, she may be the only person in this story <laughs> at this point, apparating by faith. Way to go, Sarah. And the Lord took care of her. Man, sometimes, you guys, in marriages, this is a really good thing to remember because your spouse may be acting like an idiot. They may be making terrible decisions. You may know this. And you may be tempted to try to fix it yourself, but may I ask you just, would you trust the Lord? Would you pray? He is able to intervene and step in for you even when your spouse is an idiot. Now, lest you think Abraham got off scot-free, the Bible is very clear that there's always consequences for our decisions, right? Colossians chapter three, the one who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done and that without partiality. It's not at all different. God's grace to us is true and there are also consequences. And we'll see as this story plays out, if we were to follow it along, that by the time they get down the road about 10 years and they still haven't got any kids, Sarah comes up with the plan of how they can help God. Once again, expedience. Ah, oh, we've got this lack. What are we going to do? I've got a plan. It's called, how about you sleep with my servant girl and have a baby with her? And where did she get this lady Hagar? Where did this handmaid come from? This Egyptian handmaid? Man, if Abraham had never gone down there, would he even have the option? He picked up some things along the way, some baggage that came back to haunt him later. Guys, don't go to Egypt if you can avoid it. Stay in the land where God has called you. So verse thir- or chapter 13, verse one through four, we'll be done. So Abraham left Egypt and traveled north to the Negev along with his wife and Lot and all they owned. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. And from the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai where they had camped before. This was the same place that Abraham had built the altar and there he worshiped the Lord again. Last point. When you have erred, when you have screwed up, rather than despairing, rather than thinking that it's over for you, repent and go back to where you were at with the Lord before. This is God's precise, Jesus' precise instruction to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, remember from when you have fallen and do the deeds you did at first. Right? Are you in a spot or have you been there where you've gone into Egypt and you've just about screwed everything up and you're pretty sure that it was only by the mercy of God that you got out and you're like, what do I do now? Do the things you did at first. Remember what it was like walking with the Lord. Remember where that was. Go back to that. Some of you are back in church because of that. You've gone through something you're like, I'm back in church. I know this was a good move in my life. Maybe you had a relationship with God that centered around worship or, or the reading of God's word or, or prayer, whatever your, your practices were. You, a person who went out in the woods and talked to the Lord. Man, do those things again. Go back to those things that were part of your first relationship. And I love that about Abraham. I love that about Abraham. So while Abraham here gives us a great example of what not to do when we're in famine, he also provides us a great example of a guy who just returns to the Lord and shows us that God is faithful to his people.
these things are, are closing and we're done. Guys, what do you do when you're in famine? What do you run to? I was ashamed to see some of the things that that was producing in my life. Um, again, just like, oh Lord, really, am I still running and looking to anything else to satisfy me instead of just saying, I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you don't, if you want to know what my personal idols are, I'll happily tell you, but this, that's not the point. You guys have your own. Don't do it. Don't run to Egypt. Don't forsake the fountain of living waters for cisterns that can hold no water. It will affect you and your family, and you'll bring baggage back that could be dangerous later. And if you have, or when you have, just repent. Go back to your first love. If you need something practical, remember what you were doing when you were walking close with him before. Where were you? And do those things again. God will meet you. And guys, the best part is that all of this, really the most important person in the story, isn't you or me. Our actions and choices matter, absolutely. But God is the author of the story. Chapter 12 starts with God choosing Abraham and calling him and laying out a plan for his life. And the rest of the story continues where God waits for Abraham when he needs to wait, picks him up when he's ready to move forward, and when he's about to trash his life, intervenes. And that is the same for you and me. We can trust that kind of a God. That's the kind of a God we get to tell people about. Not be so good and maybe he'll love you, but a God who loves you, who came for you first while you were a pagan and will carry you when you were an idiot. Isn't that great? It's good news. Let's, uh, is there a closing song? I didn't ask. Yes. Okay. Let me pray while the worship team comes up. and we'll, we'll... Guys, I would really like it if, you, if in your time as you're worshiping that you would respond in two ways to the Lord. One is ask him, Lord, is there any place in my life where I'm running to Egypt that I should stop? Just search me. You don't have to look. Usually the Holy Spirit will be like, yeah, you're spending a lot of time on this. What Chris said earlier about your treasure is really going here. Your heart's there. Come on. Let's go back to the place of blessing. Ask him then if there are things you need to restart. And then, but here's where I would love you to end. Lord, thank you that you are faithful to me when I am unfaithful. Thank you that when I'm about to lose my family, when I'm about to trash my life, you will intervene for me and carry me. Worship him. He is worthy of it. Amen.